0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to New Books Network. I am your host for today, Erica Monaghan, and I have the pleasure today to speak with Professor Kees Boterblom about his new book, Russia and the Dutch Republic, 1566 to 1725. Professor Boterblom or Kees is the, a professor of history at the University of South Florida. He has written many books um, on a variety of periods. His first two books were on the Soviet period. He has written a textbook, Russia as, um, uh, pardon me, he's written a textbook, A History of Russia and Its Empire, from Mikhail Romanov to Vladimir Putin, which is in already, it's nearing its third edition. He has also written a book, Russia as Empire, Past and Present, And he's written three books. I'll just share in addition to um, the book that we're talking about today. Prior to this, he wrote a wonderful book called The Dirty Secret of Early Modern Capitalism, The Global Reach of the Dutch Arms Trade, Warfare and Mercenaries in the 17th Century. And he has written detailed books on two of the characters that make bit appearances in the book we're talking about today. And those are, um, and those are, a book about Andre Vinius, modernizer of Russia, and the fiction and reality of Jan Struess. So it is my great pleasure to have such an, such an expert to um, talk to today about the history of Russia and the Dutch Republic. Thank you so much for being with us today, Case.
0: Thank you very much, uh, Professor Monaghan. Glad oh, to be here.
1: Thank you. Erica. please. And um, so we generally start out all New Books Network um, interviews with the question, could you please tell our audience a bit about your path into history? How and why did you become a historian?
0: Uh, Well, it's, it's complicated and it's simple. I'll give you the simple version, otherwise it'll take too long. Um I went to school, high school in the Netherlands, and you have this kind of streamed high school. So I took the higher stream, which was a lot of um, classical languages and foreign languages. And I chose as well to do for my final exam, which you do at about the age of 17 or so, uh, history. And immediately then selected already history as my major at the University of Amsterdam. So in those days, you had a bachelor's and a master's still in the Dutch program, which the bachelor's has been abolished, I think. Uh, And I took a bachelor's in history at the University of Amsterdam. And then my master's, because that was normally what you did. um, I also took a teaching degree for high school, actually, at the same time. Uh, So that brought me to to history, Uh, Russian history. I had done some sort of, uh, uh, let's say, essay, even at primary school on the Soviet Union, oddly enough, and uh, everybody had to do in my class something about the European country, and I was the only one who did the Soviet Union. And My teacher even then had liked it already, and I was kind of fascinated by the Soviet Union, a fascination which was rekindled at university through uh, a group of historians there. Uh, there was also, at the time, at the University of Amsterdam, an Eastern European Institute, and I took several seminars there with, uh, particularly the head of the seminar who wrote later on, a kind of standard textbook on uh, the history of the Soviet Union in, in Dutch. And there was someone else who was a specialist um, on Iraq, Litsi it's a, a 1917 Georgian revolutionary, a Menshevik, who also taught something on the historiography of the Russian Revolution. So that's how I ran If back well, or came back to Russian history. I mean, you had to take of courses in any kind of major, all kind of other areas as well. Um, but that got me to history. And then after a hiatus of a few years where I was trying to find my bearings, I think, um, I went back to do a doctorate at McGill University in, in Montreal Uh, on Soviet history, which was in part also because by the time I applied there, the Soviet Union began to fall apart. I applied there in 1988, actually. And uh, while I was doing my doctorate, the Soviet Union stopped uh, actually uh, existing.
1: Oh, that's remarkable. So in some ways, this is... um you were getting serious about the study of Soviet history as the Soviet Union was unwinding. And now we are, you have been working for years um, more on imperial history in this moment where questions of the Russian imperial legacy um, loom larger than they have at any point, probably since
0: 1991. Uh, Yeah, correct. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't, deliberately choose it like that. I mean, in part, I, I went back to the imperial period because um, my curiosity was piqued by someone called Philip Longworth, who taught me at McGill in early modern Russian history and pointed out the text by Jan Strauss, actually, and said, ah, this is there is this text, we have it here in the rare book section, it is printed, it is 17th century, and it's by this Dutchman, and he travels to Russia. Have you any idea uh, about it? And I said, no, I have no idea. Um, But the problem for Longworth was, I think, that he only could look at the English version. He didn't know Dutch, so I could find the original Dutch version. And that's how I went back after my two Soviet books, um, my dissertation and then the second book. I went back in part as well because um, I was teaching in those days at a small university in Canada where I had a very intense teaching load, um, which made it really impossible to go for any length of time to Russia to do intensive archival research, which I had done for the first two books. But I realized I can't really spend that much time in an archives anymore because I don't have the time or the money probably to do so. So I had a printed text in that third book. and that maybe go back to the imperial period to some extent but of course as you point out what you get if you look at all these different things you see all the connections you see all the links you begin to ponder things such as empire things such as nationalism things such as colonization and decolonization
1: yeah thank you so um well in some ways that leads me up to the next question i i wanted to ask you is still keeping it fairly generic but why did you write this book
0: Um, This book is is a bizarre kind of has a bizarre kind of uh, (laughs) background. Um, I at some point in time writing I think what was the book on Venus, my fourth book let's say. I came across an advertisement in the 1960s in the Slavic Review, in which it was announced that a certain Jordan Courland was preparing a dissertation on uh, the Dutch Republic and um, Roman of Russia in the 17th century. I had, in my research at that point, not come across this dissertation. So I was kind of curious, and eventually I managed to trace uh, Mr. Courland, who was still Alive, And this was now around 2010. And I called him. I said, it says in the Slavic Review that you were at Columbia University. You were writing this dissertation, but I can't find it. Why is that? And he answered, well, because I never finished it. (laughs) Uh, He had started to work for the AAUP, the American Association of University Professors. And as a result, he had abandoned really uh, his work. He was already a college teacher with an MA at the time. But he in in the end had moved up to New York to take care of this professional organization for university teachers and uh, his material had uh, had never materialized into a dissertation all right I thought okay that's good because I was a bit uh, at that point worried as you always are that someone already had taken the wind out of my sails which was um, you know writing about venues at any great length at that moment anyway uh, Mr. Courland apparently died about five years later or so around 2015 if I recall, and within half a year or so an an advertisement, an email was sent around through, I think, the early Slavist Association of of, of ASES and there was a question asked by someone who appeared to be the son of Jordan Courland, his son is called Stuart actually, uh, whether or not anyone was interested in all the materials his father had gathered for a dissertation which had never been finished, which he was planning to write, and it was on this Dutch embassy in particular, in the 1660s an embassy which was going to Moscow, it was the so-called Jacob Borrell embassy, as it was called. Um, I I immediately responded and I said, yes, I'm interested in this. (laughs) And I was interested by that point particularly because I had written out two books, several articles on the Dutch uh, in the Say 17th century Russia in the pre-Petrine period, if you like. Um, and um, although I had written two books, I felt there were still there were things which needed to be addressed, things which needed to be explored. And oh, by the way, I actually had a third book in Dutch out as well on this, which was is a, a retranslation of Strauss's third part, which is annotated, but that's in Dutch, by the way as well. So that's actually going to be my fourth work. But anyway, I was curious because I knew of the embassy, and I in fact had the report, which is hundreds of pages in handwriting long, uh, of the embassy in my computer. It had been digitized by um, uh, archivists in The Hague, actually, for me, together with the Konrad von Klank, the next embassy. I had that, too. So I said, I'm interested in seeing all of this. So I said, please send it to me. And I think some other people helped in the field and said, oh, you should send it to Botenblum, because he knows something about these things. He has published on this. I think that uh, the late David Schimmelpenning von der Oe was one of them probably pointing that out. So, uh, Mr. Corland or Dr. Corland, I should say, who is at uh, New Jersey University, uh, it's, what is it, Mont, it's Montcalm or something like that? Anyway, he's a, a literary specialist, specialist of English lit. And uh, so we were in contact, I said, okay, sure, I'd like to take it, I'd like to have a look at it, and I'll see if I can do something with it. So I got the materials both digitized and actually uh, the actual files and the kind of cue cards which Jordan Courland used in the 1950s and 60s for his research sent home and i went through it and i thought this is interesting okay i can see where where this is where he was going i could also see it was i mean there were a few i think there was one chapter or something done but it was really very far from being finished so i looked at it for a while and i thought, like yeah i can see how this was supposed to be written it was supposed to be a very much economically focused sort of dissertation which was very popular in the 60s to do this economic slant but I also knew by this point, because of my own research, that that economic slam was only part of the story. So I uh, I wrote, I, I corresponded with Stuart Courland and I said, you know, I'd love to use this, uh, but I don't think I can just produce it, let's say, as a posthumous editor and put it out because there is no dissertation, certainly not a book there yet, to be honest. So, I mean, I want to use this material and I want to give credit to your father, but at the same time, you know, I don't know what to do with it. So he said, okay, well, maybe I can write a an introduction a forward, uh, in which uh, I, I talk about my father, I, I, I write a uh, short biography about him, and you can then furthermore integrate whatever his findings were into the book you're writing. And I explained to him by that point, I thought a, a kind of overview and a kind of survey of Dutch-Russian relations is what I had in mind, starting from the beginning of the Dutch Republic, which you could place in the 1560s, so to more or less, uh, you know, the death or so of Peter the Great, when the the great kind of friendship between the two countries comes to an end, actually. So that's uh, how the book came into being. It took a while, though, to put it all together, because there was a tremendous amount of uh, there has been a tremendous amount of publication, actually, on this issue, even though a survey about the relationship between these two countries in that period, um, was not written uh, has not been written since eighteen fifteen the last time by a Dutch archivist actually so it was definitely a gap there in my mind so I thought I'm gonna try to fill that gap with this book so that's how the book came into being
1: super thank you so much and one of the things um you use the word survey and I and my impression reading it was um I appreciated what a succinct but nice job you did of contextualizing the geopolitics of European wars that are going on with um, without getting in the weeds that seemed to go um, a, a few steps beyond what one's typical Russian textbook does for the reader. Um, so that's that's kind of just a comment. Um, but okay, so, how would you define the the typical historical problem you're tackling here? Maybe that's not a fair question since you've just said here, I'm writing a survey, but maybe, maybe instead I would put it this way. So before there, this book came along, was there a conventional wisdom? Was there agreement on Russian Dutch relations in the, through this period and, and how, how do you think of this book as contributing um, and maybe informing that, consensus or conventional wisdom. How do do you, I guess, you know, the historic question, what do you see as the major historiographical intervention you're making?
0: Yeah, I I call it a survey, but it is a little bit more than that, um, because I have found that by and large, people have underestimated the role of the Dutch in, uh, you know, being a conduit maybe for Russia becoming an empire. it was logical that people focus on the economic side. So the conventional wisdom was, well, the Dutch, economically speaking, played an important role because they began to trade with the Russians, and you know, because of the volume and value of this trade, this helped Russia along uh, in, uh, you know, in terms of of you know gathering more revenue, etc., through things such as the fur trade, and that ultimately aided, uh, you know. Uh, uh, Russia's attempt to finance its armies and so on. And of course Russia was uh, was interested in having a navy under Peter the Great and the Dutch came to uh, to help Peter the Great with that. He, and his father, people also knew, had already tried to build, and even his grandfather had tried to build a ship with Dutch ship, ship rights uh, uh, as his assistance, let's say. But I found, um, because of what I had done earlier, that there's only one side of the story. So I think I have tried to provide a much more rounded picture which is much more of a uh, let's say an, uh, an exportation of of Um, of technology uh, you know a growth in providing information to the Russian government and so on so that you don't only see merchants and certainly there are many merchants and they're very wealthy merchants and they make a lot of money in Russia but you also see a lot of other uh, Dutch um, born people active and playing an important role in Russia, such as medical doctors, um, such as military men—actually, uh, that is not navy, but actually military men, literally who fight land wars—and some fortification builders were involved as well. All these people moved to Russia at some point in time from the late 16th century onwards and contribute in a meaningful way to, uh, let's say, the technological, uh, uh, let's say, modernization of Russia and um, i found that the the story was in other words too one-sided economically um which certainly should not be underplayed either but there was a lot more going on there as well and um, that's what I wanted to emphasize more um and I also wanted to move away a little bit from this idea that it was it really when it really mattered it was was when Peter the Great actually ruled so let's say from the 1680s till about seven, the 1710s or so and my argument and that's certainly not a new argument has made, made been made by many is that uh, you know there was a lot of preparation there The Dutch were actually fairly familiar people in the Moscow of the 1660s and 1670s already. There was a fairly large expatriate Dutch community, which had a strong influence in in several ways on what was going on in in Moscow and what the Russian government was doing. So I wanted to point that out as well. This, uh, let's say, um, you know, information transfer and so on, this technology transfer, which is going on, which is perhaps just as important as his economic transfer. And I wanted to adjust the chronology a little bit, pointing out that the roots of what Peter does in his infatuation with the Dutch come from the fact that the Dutch had established themselves already much earlier. And were actually so annoying that someone like the English Dr. Samuel Collins really berated them when he went back to England around 1670 in a publication about, about the Russia he witnessed because they seem to be everywhere they seem to be so prominent these Dutch people taking the wind out of the sails literally of the English merchants
1: right right and the, yes you do kind of um it seems to me that um you know thinking of Maria Arell's book there we we can read more about the British in Russia than about the Dutch in Russia and yet and um and so that is an a big part of the story in in the English language literature, I I guess I'm thinking of, all right, I'm going to come back and ask you to elaborate a little bit on Peter. But um, before that, because you said you're adjusting the chronology, you write in the book that, um, that one of the Colonel, one of the kernels of Jordan Curlin's investigation was the Boreal embassy and that he saw that as a very significant embassy. And you write in the book, that Curland was right. The Boreal Embassy was really important, but not quite in the way that Curland was thinking. And so why? Tell us more about what you mean by that.
0: Um, well- Poland looked um, at the embassy and decided that the embassy, and it, it, on paper this is true, is all about economic issues. There's really nothing else going on. And at some point, late in the embassy, actually, the Russian party, the Russian side, actually goes to border the ambassador, and says, could you actually mediate in the conflict the war we're having with Poland? And the Dutch are absolutely taken aback by this. Like, what? Why would you want us to get, get mediate in that war you're fighting? We're here for economic issues. We're here for trade issues. Because you have uh, confiscated Dutch goods, you are, uh, you know, uh, you are raising to your 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 import fees too high, and so that's the sort of thing we're here for. Um, but what is happening behind the scenes is very. Interesting. And it is something which is nowhere found in the official report behind the scenes on the embassy is a son of an Amsterdam mayor who is quite young. Still, he's about 23, 24 years old, and his name is Nikolaas Witze and Nikolaas Witze does his own thing. Um, One is supposed uh, to stay within the confines of the ambassadorial court in Moscow if one visits as a foreign ambassador or as a member of the ambassador's retinue. However, Witze, who is a so-called noble, he's a sort of assistant, let's say, to the ambassador Borel, is actually going out on his own. And he's traveling around secretly, furtively, and interviewing all kinds of people out russia about siberia he meets all sorts of people including the um, patriarch in exile nikon uh, who whose monastery he actually visits and in addition to that, it seems as well that he makes contact with someone who is exactly his age, who is of Dutch heritage, who is born to Dutch parents, whose name is and- Andries or and- Andre Vinius. And Andre Vinius is the interpreter on the side of the Tsar, on the side of the Russians, but is multilingual, knows Dutch. And the two young men seem to hit it off. There's even suspicion that they're somewhere in the great past. They were actually relatives, like their great grandfathers or something who were related or something like that. But anyway, they hit it off. There's no sign anywhere that the two actually become friends. But there is a clear indication that they they must have made contact from what happens afterwards, uh, in the next 50 years, actually, Venus, who is in Interpreter of Alexei, the father of Peter the Great in the 1660s, Peter is not even born yet. Venus remains in the Tsarist bureaucracy and moves up the ranks and gets more and more, more and more important of a role actually to play. And eventually he becomes a sort of advisor to Peter. And some people say he may even have been a, a, an instructor in certain ways of Peter the Great actually, when Peter is not really you know willing to become Tsar yet in the 1680s and early 1690s. It is certainly true that between Vinius and Witze, who returns, of course, with the embassy to Amsterdam in 1665, uh, there is contact because in the end it is Nikolaus Witze who by that point has become his, himself an, a, a mayor of Amsterdam. Nikolaus Witze manages to have a ship built in Amsterdam for the Tsar, which is sailed to the port of Archangel, Archangelsk in the north, uh, and is given to the Tsar are on the orders of the tsar the order is probably placed by Venus, and uh, the two of them remain in contact and in the end Witze uh, um, is also the person who is the one who ushers, who shepherds Peter the Great through the Netherlands on his grand embassy in 1697-1698. Uh, and uh, he, he makes the first modern map already before that in the 1680s for Peter, which he offers to Peter the Great, for example. And as a result of that, he's very important in this kind of transfer of information, of knowledge again, which inspires peter the great in many ways uh, in his modernization t- and uh, project uh, which he really undertakes in earnest from about let's say the early 1690s or so onwards so this link which is made during an embassy in the 1660s the boreal embassy between Venus and witsen is actually much more essential it seems to me than the economic side and the small economic issues discussed between the official ambassador and the official Russian side because it lays the groundwork for the kind of fascination and 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 modernization of Russia in a scientific and technological respect, which of course becomes very important because Peter the Great in 1725, just after his death, his, uh, the Academy of Sciences opened on his initiative. Before that, he has already, of course, his Chamber of Curiosity, the Kunstkammer in St. Petersburg, and that inspiration, see, you can trace, according to me, to that contact lay between Bitze uh, and Vinius in many ways. Vinius was for a long time very close to both Peter and to Peter himself, and I think in that sense uh, was the sort of conduit uh, for that particular technological, scientific sort of transformation. Thank
1: you so much. As you, as you, I think I might have mentioned to you um, in uh, just between us. I am so interested in Nicholas Wittsen, so I would ask you uh, um, bunches of questions about him, but maybe more than any yeah. of the audience would like to hear. But I will ask you one thing. Um, do you see Vitsen and his curiosity about Russia and Tartary he makes this map of Tartary as um initiating just within himself or perhaps in cooperation with his family or other leaders in Amsterdam or or, or where do you see kind of the motivation I am I'm, I um I appreciate you've kind of talked about Peter being inspired by his curiosities, um, what's driving Witsen?
0: Uh, good question, of course. Um, from what I can understand, there's a few things there. He studies in of as a young man, and I think it's one of his teachers, if I'm correct, I think it's Hondius or something, who, or, or no, no, it's not Hondius, it's, it's Goldschutz or something like that. It, anyway, it is, well, yeah, something like that. Anyway, it's a professor who is already specializing in Asia, And Witser takes classes with him, although I think he takes a law degree in the end or something like that, but he takes classes with him and the classes he takes on what is more or less the geography and so on and history of Asia and some of the languages and how they are related to each other is something which inspires him. So that is one thing. He has already a great curiosity in things in Asia and that is stimulated then, of course, because of the Long-standing by that point, at least in the middle of the 17th century, Dutch trade with uh, the Indies uh, through their own East India Company. Eventually, by the way, Witsa will be one of its directors. He never travels to Asia, but he's one of the directors of the East India Company around 1700. So while he's interested in Asia, he's, um, he you know, as a student, he also remains as a grown-up interested in Asia. And he becomes a very important kind of uh, regent of Amsterdam. Um, but at some point in time, Amsterdam tends to have or has four mayors per year, and one of them is a the senior mayor, and I think he's sometimes a senior mayor. Uh, but at some point, to give you an idea of how strange it was in the Netherlands, Amsterdam, which is, at the point, of course, a trading hub of the European world economy around that time, at some point, two of four mayors are uh, the switzer who is the sort of amateur ethnographer geographer if you like but another one is actually a highly respected mathematician hood i think so two of them are sort of uh, scientists or something like that among the mayors. and at the same time he's interested in the east india company as well and he gets all the time it's, it's unfortunately that collection has completely disappeared he gets all the time curious uh, all the time curiosities from East India uh, offi- East India Company officials, also from ca- from captains of the ships, they come back and bring him all this stuff, which he then, in his canal house in Amsterdam, exhibits or something like that, and which, to some extent, inform his whole attempt to try to particularly describe a part of the world which is this kind of blank space still in terms of not just on the map, but in terms of describing things which is you know the area to the north of china uh, tartary um, as he calls it indeed Uh, and uh, he tries to he realizes that a lot of of about that can be learned from the russian perspective but he is also involved in trying to get information from jesuits for example at the Kangxi emperor's um, Uh, court in Beijing at the time, uh, one of the first Qing emperors, in other words, who also gave him information uh, at the same time. But because he ends up on the Russian ambassador, of course, his links and his connections with the Russian side are better, in particular, too, because he is likely communicating with Vinyus, and he certainly... can. Communicating with all the other people who are expatriates there, some people who are just going there temporarily as traders and merchants. So he gets more and more information about this part of the world about which he seems to think we don't know very much and which really needs to be further explored, including, for example, the issue whether or not there is a link between Eastern Siberia overland with what we Now called Alaska, because there is still some doubt about that actually at the time. So he also tries to answer that question. But he is, in many ways, an amateur, you know, ethnographer almost, an amateur geographer at the same time. As he complains in some of his correspondence, by the way, he uh, regrets that he has to spend so much time on politics and that he ultimately cannot really spend enough time on this enormous work on which he keeps working until his death in 1717 because he was preparing a third edition which would even be longer than a thousand pages of folio he already had published earlier actually as well but again he's a politician as well he's also the representative of Amsterdam who goes uh, with William III on the expedition which conquers England in 1688 so he's on uh, on that fleet actually landing at Torbay and marching up with Army to London, and that takes him a year away from Amsterdam. Actually, which he cer- certainly, certainly, as a kind of scholar scientist, really resents. I think.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's remarkable that um, the the business of life kept Witsen from publishing everything he would have liked to. Just as the business of life kept. Um, Jordan Curlin from publishing everything he might have liked to. Yeah. And, and yes, hats, no, off,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> hats off to you for your productivity because these books don't write themselves and you've written several. Um, all right. Next question. Um, so in the book, you're describing this shift and you, you, you are describing Dutch has its golden moment on the world stage in the 17th century. And, and that gets eclipsed pretty, um, you know, in due time. And, similarly you describe this kind of shift where russia perhaps gets a little less enamored of things dutch during peter's reign if i understood and i am um, and again this you know this question of the role peter plays i really appreciate how you're talking about all these trends and initiatives that are underway prior to peter's reign is something i think that within the field of early modernists, we have a good sense of, but you open up any Western Civ textbook and it's sort of, um, you still can get that line, Russia was darkness until Peter came and brought light, um, a line that you know his own eulogia, um, eulogist uh, first introduced to us. So um, uh, the question I wanna ask is kind of about Peter, how big of a role does Peter play in this shift of Russian-Dutch relations that you describe in your book?
0: Well, um, it always goes back to the, the the same story, which I think has the kernel of truth in it. When he goes on the Grand Embassy in 1697, he um, goes first to the Netherlands, where he tries to and does work on the East India ships wars with the mediation of Whitson again, right? And... Um, he realizes that the Dutch really don't make the most modern ships anymore, and in addition to which, they don't really use blueprints to make standardized ships and so on. And he he was planning already to go to England, so he takes the royal yacht to England, actually, where William the Third is king. And he realizes when he goes to the British ship's wharves that the British actually are more advanced indeed. And although he remains, let's say, fond of things Dutch as a sort of almost, you know, nostalgic curiosity, dressing in Dutch clothes and whatever you have, he does realize that the Dutch are falling behind in terms of technological advances. They were the most let's say technologically advanced country in the world perhaps around 1650 by 1700 the English already have uh, have surpassed them and that ultimately I think explains why he turns away from the Dutch he also realizes that he is ruling in Russia I think at some point where uh, he realizes this that you know Russia is not a republic Russia is, is is organized very differently that that the Dutch Republic cannot be let's say politically speaking or even you know, maybe militarily speaking, a model for russia anymore so he looks around and he finds different models the swedish model perhaps which he certainly looks at uh, the british model the english model indeed and uh, and also eventually even towards the end of his life he looks a little bit at france when he goes back on his second embassy in 1716 1717 the dutch have become a lot of yeah, a bit of a curiosity more uh, well, she is nostalgic, but he's not entirely, I think, um, enamored anymore about their particular, let's say, economic, uh, technological kind of advance. And uh, so he moves away from them in some ways, even though he he rem- he, fi- he remembers them fondly, it seems. And you don't see too many real, you know, Dutch people anymore in his surroundings. Phineas, towards the end of the li- uh, of his life, is more or less disgraced, although he's not entirely uh, ban- banished or something like that, and so on. So. Uh, Ultimately, he surrounds himself much more with other advisors. Uh, he also becomes much more confident, I think, in some ways in that the Russian adaptation of Western ways is beginning to work.
1: OK, thank you. Um, next, I want to ask a, a lighter question. And th- this comes that from the, that um, the book is such an enjoyable read. It's got 26 Thank chapters you. and they're brisk and short and you have all these vignettes with so many personalities in them. And so I wanted to ask you, if you had to pick one of your subjects to have dinner with, um, who would it be and why? And maybe if it would be Witson, you would tell us about someone else since to not let him crowd out, you know, all of our conversation.
0: No, I, I, the person would be, and that is, that's for sort of almost sentimental reasons. it would be Colonel Cornelis von Bokhoven. Now, Cornelius shares his first name with me. He was also, I'm sure, he was Case, like there were many, Yana and Kese, therefore Yankees, right, in the United States. Manhattan is populated by Yana and Kese, therefore you have Yankees, Yankees, right? Anyway, Cornelius was also a Case, like me, but the other interesting thing about Cornelius von Bokov is, a colonel in the Russian army from 1647 until 1677, actually, he actually has the same last name as one of my grandmothers. When the first time I came across his name, I almost faint for there is a Cornelis from Bokhove in the Russian army in 1660. Again, my grandmother was called Cornelia from Bokhove, all right? so I was like, that's impossible. I do not think there's any kind of family relation as far as I can establish through genealogy. So it's pure coincidence. But why I like to eat with him is because when I went through the documents for the building of the ship for Peter the Great's father, the Eagle or Ariol in the 1680s, which was built by Dutch shipwrights and which is and sailors, including Jan Strauss. Uh, Van Bokhove was sent down from Moscow to this side river of the Akka River, south of Moscow, where they were building this ship on, on on a wharf and so on. There were a lot of Russian carpets involved, by the way, but it was overseen by the Dutch. And Van Bokhove was sent here as a colonel to, um, to more or less be the guard to make sure that, that there was no unrest and so on and fairly soon complaints were being sent back by a russian clerk who worked in the government that van bokhoven was having a great time partying all the time (laughs) not paying much attention to the discipline on the wharf and really postponing things because of his attitude (laughs) which made me think that he was having Party asset party every night with these other Dutch people, you know, eat, uh, eating lavishly, etc. And he seemed, in other words, to be a real bon vivant. So I do think that he would be, you know, as an army officer, be a great, great, great fun to sit at the table with and to have me uh, uh, regale me to the stories he, he he knew about his fighting in the Dutch Independence War, where he had earned his early stripes. There is suspicion he may even have fought in England in the Civil Wars. There. Yeah, certainly he had been already for twenty years in Russian service. He would die at the siege of Sheherin in sixteen seventy seven. Actually, uh, Patrick Gordon, who uh, was his son-in-law, actually writes about the death of his father-in-law. There, it would have been a lot of fun to to have this person at my table uh, because he had seen the entire world, it seems, and he was a jolly guy. So you would have had a lot of fun with him.
1: Okay, thank you. And um, my next question, because I like to think of myself as a practical person too, is um, there's lots of people I might like to um, have fantastic conversation with, but if I had to travel for an extended time with, they wouldn't quite be my choice, maybe. And so my question to you is, if you had to pick one of the subjects in your book to take a long trip with, who would that be and why?
0: Uh, Jan Struijs, no doubt. Um, Jan Struijs, um, in his book published in uh, 1676 in Amsterdam in its first Dutch edition and then translated to French, German, English, eventually Russian as well. Jan Struijs uh, writes in this book about 30 years of traveling the world's seas and all the continents, uh, almost, and had seen so much in that time as an you know, average person and actually born not too far from where I was born, uh, that I would have had, uh, I I would never have gotten bored with the stories of what he had seen and also with the stories he probably made up. So in that sense, I think he could have talked for, you know, literally months and still wouldn't have bored me talking about the cultures he had seen on Madagascar, in Thailand, in Indonesia, in Italy, um, in Russia, in Iran, for example. So I think he would have been a great travel companion. In addition to which, he was a very versatile man. He was, by trade, actually started out as a sailmaker, but he was clearly a very good sailor at some point in time in, in his life he manages even uh, to uh, to pretend that he actually has experience as a ship's captain which he had never had but the, the king of Denmark was, fell for it actually so in that sense he was very believable he was also uh, someone who made up stories including even that book is partially made up and partially written certainly by other people because he was not he could not write actually uh, in, uh, I, as far as I can see from our, um, archives and for, from documents and archives but he would have been a great Person to travel around with because you wouldn't have been bored for for a moment, I think.
1: Sure, and if he did cover so much ground, he was probably pretty reliable at at getting from one place to another. Yes, too. he's
0: he's <laughs> absolutely he survived all kind <laughs> of awful things, um, and so in that sense, yes, that too, he would have have been a, a great kind of uh, protector to have around you. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, Keith, um, it has been such a pleasure talking with you about. Russia and the Dutch Republic, 1566 to 1725. It's published by Lexington Books, just out in 2021. I encourage our audience to check it out. Um, and But before I let you go, we, a traditional NBN question, New Books Network question is, um, what are you working on next?
0: Um, yeah, every time I think, well, this is going to be the last thing not at all I'm working actually on three things right now um one is um a a biography um which was initiated you could argue by someone uh, in the Netherlands um someone who is a retired obstetrician gynecologist on a Dutch East India company doctor in the 18th century it has nothing to do with Russia (laughs) but I have helped him translate it and whip it into shape as a real book of history, which he as a medical doctor wasn't quite sure on how to do that. We're still working on it. It should be coming out with Brill. It's going to be richly illustrated if Brill falls for it, but Brill might because Brill will publish. uh, They will just put it into the price, I think. Uh, Secondly, I'm working on a book, again, that goes back to my, you know, my earlier kind of, I guess, uh, scholarly endeavors um, on a comparison between Soviet and Nazi posters with a scholar in London, uh, Lisa Pine, who is a specialist on life in Nazi Germany, um, and we will compare posters, uh, Soviet posters with Nazi posters and and interpret their significance, actually, that's going to be with Bloomsbury, and then I've been writing things to people I've met on online, really, in Kazan, in, in Tat, uh, Tatarstan in Russia. I'm writing a sort of survey on um, the history of Tatarstan since its early beginnings, which is, in other words, since about the 18th century until today. Um, and, you know, so that is, I'm doing that more or less on my own, although my Tatar friends have helped with that as well, in part because many people have been actually studying this particular part of the world in it, and, and written dissertations about it, in English and even books, but nobody has given a full overview, and there are a particularly a few areas which have been understudied, so I'm trying to fill that gap, A survey, in other words, that book is being uh, looked at by Lexington, actually, The review should be in soon. I have no idea what they're going to say. I keep my fingers crossed. If I have to redo some things, that would be fine, too, because I'm in no great hurry. So there's three very disparate things, one 18th century Dutch, one thing on the Soviet period, and one survey again. So that's, that's what I'm doing right now.
1: Oh, that, that sounds fantastic. And definitely as someone who does, you know, has studied Siberia a lot, it does seem like a survey of Tatarstan is a much you know, that can definitely um, serve a, a real purpose in our fields. Um, and and to, just that I'm not a Soviet specialist is no comment on the other ones at all. But, um, well, with that. Let's close. And I just want to thank you so much for your time. This has been this has been great fun. Reading the book was great fun. Talking to you was great fun. And so I, on behalf of our New Books Network's audiences, I'd like to thank you so much for talking with me today.
0: Thank you very much, uh, Erica, for the opportunity. I very much enjoyed it.
1: All right. Thank you. Goodbye.
0: Goodbye.